You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group and American National Insurance. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hannah Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hannah Chardonnay is a great option. This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes, or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and brilliant minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Chef Mark Forgione. It's not always about money. It's not always about the fanciest thing. It's not always about what you think is going to happen or guaranteed or this, that, the other thing. Sometimes your heart has a way of leading you in the right direction. Mark Forgione is a New York-based American restaurateur. He began his culinary career at the age of 16, joining his father, Larry, in the kitchen at an American place. Mark's highly acclaimed first restaurant, Restaurant Mark Forgione, opened in Tribeca more than a decade ago and earned him consecutive Michelin stars, making him the youngest American chef to receive this honor. In 2020, Mark took over the iconic Nolita destination Peasant, the wood-fired Italian restaurant that had been a downtown New York City fixture for 22 years. Mark is currently working on the restaurant One-Fifth, which marks the first opening under Mark's new hospitality group, Respect Hospitality. Mark has always lived and worked by the mantra of respect as it touches so many aspects of hospitality, from ingredients to history to employees to the art of service and more. I can't wait for you to enjoy my conversation with Mark Forgione. Hi, Mark. How are you? Great. How are you? Great. Thank you for being on To Dine For The Podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm going to begin with a really tough question for you as a well-known New York City restaurateur. If you had to pick one restaurant 
as your absolute favorite that says something about you, who you are and where you're from, where would you choose? Like one that's not mine? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That is a tough question for so many different reasons. I would have said a restaurant that's no longer open, so I can't do that. Where, 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 where would that be? It would have been BLT Prime just because that was like my first chef job and that's where I met my wife. And it always had like such a nostalgic, like we would go there for our anniversary every year. Um, but it just closed this year, actually. But in the same vein, you know, kind of just reminding me of like my, my youth um, and kind of what's inspired me to open One Fifth and even kind of the food we're serving at Peasant would probably be Casa Mono. Mm. And why do you say Casa Mono? I love that restaurant. I used to live down there like way back in the day, like 20 years ago. Um, I just it, like introduced me to like, again, ingredients that I'm now very familiar with, but at the time a young cook. And I just loved like the this kind of small plate and the the sharing and the cook right in front of you. And for the, for me at that time, I was probably like 23, maybe give or take, I don't know. And it was just like so new and exciting. And like I said, now one fifth, I'm kind of finally serving kind of Italian tapas. And I know peasant, I know Cosmo didn't have a wood burning grill, but it had like this like plancha that was like right in front of you. And like, I just thought it was like so cool to like watch everything happen like that. You know, Casamono for people who are listening is sort of this small, dark, sexy, tapas, small plate. And because it's so small, the restaurant's so small and there's so much activity, you can see everyone working, the excitement. There is a buzz to that restaurant. There's an energy when you walk in and it's palpable and it's fun and it's very engaging. And it really, I think, speaks to the idea of ambiance making a restaurant great, you know, food, obviously, but there are certain restaurants that kind of take it up a level because of the ambiance, don't you think? Yeah. And like I said, I think just kind of realizing this, as you say it, restaurant Mark Porgione, you know, it's, it, it's dark. It's, you know, I hate talking about my own places like this, but you know, <laughs> it's sexy and it's energetic and, um, you know, something else that Casamono, you know, it was a lot of my first, you know, it was the first time I ever had sepia. Um, I think mm. like the first time I ever had tongue, mm. I think it was the first time I ever had, uh, you know, like barnacles, you know what I mean? Like, like they yeah. were like, they were doing food that you didn't see other places. And I kind of like to pride myself on that as well. And, you know, realizing that I think a lot of that was from those early dinners it was a great date spot too. Yeah. Great date spot. Thank you for that. That thank that, that really, you know, I, uh, the, the concept of this podcast and the TV show on PBS is that someone's favorite restaurant doesn't tell the whole story, but it begins to tell someone's story. So you really kind of proved the point there. So thank you, Mark. Make sure we send this to Andy, okay? There we go. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Please tell me a little bit about how you grew up. Your father, Larry, was a chef, correct? Tell me a little bit about your early days and your childhood. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I always like to joke around with people like I did not grow up eating lobster and foie gras and, and caviar <laughs> as much as, as much as it might seem <laughs> like I did. I did not. I did not. You know, I was born in 1978. My dad opened his first restaurant in 1983. So you didn't see him. <laughs> I was about to say, I don't need to tell most people that are listening to this. You know, it's, it's really hard. Those first, you know, 10 years of your own restaurant. I mean, it's really hard. Um, those are probably the hardest. That was probably the hardest decade of my life was the first 10 years of my restaurant. And like, so he, you know, he was there and working and, 
you know, I always knew that dad had a restaurant, but I didn't know that he was, you know, changing the way uh, Americans ate. Um, you know, when we were going to eat there, it was like, yeah, we're just going to dad's restaurant. You know what I mean? Um, and I thought everybody's dad who had a restaurant was serving piquito crab salad with smoked onion remoulade and <laughs> pickled green beans. And, you know, I, I just thought cedar plank salmon and free range chicken. Like I thought those were like common things. I didn't know that other restaurants didn't have that. You know what I mean? At what point did you realize that you had an interest in cooking and food and you saw that as a path forward for you? So, I mean, you can ask my parents. I've always loved food. I've always been interested in food. I used to love going to the restaurants with my dad. I used to love cooking at the stove with my mom. Uh, my mom should get a little shout out. I mean, she was the one cooking for four of us, you know, while my dad was building that career. Um, she was a great cook. They actually met at the Culinary Institute. Mm. But we had like real food growing up. I don't know. I think when I realized like, hey, I could do this as a job. I mean, listen, like any other, most kids, right? When I was a teenager, it was like, oh, I need money. And, you know, your parents are like, well, go to work. And, you know, it just so happened when it was like, well, you want a summer job? Yeah, sure. You can work at an American place, which again, I didn't realize was the restaurant that it was. It was just like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, this school, I'm commuting into the city, like I'm working, like, you know, I was working in Garmage and in the prep kitchen and, and not realizing how much I was learning, like kind of through osmosis, you know? What, what do you think is the biggest lesson your dad imparted to you, whether it's about life or cooking? A little bit of both, you know what I mean? Because uh, the way that he ran his kitchens is kind of the way we ran our, <laughs> our home, you know, and it was, you know, kind of, well, you know, I just recently named my hospitality group Respect Hospitality. And I think a lot of that comes from the way that I grew up, the way that an American place was, um, you know, respect, you know, for yourself and, you know, for your room and, you know, for the way you talk to your parents and for the way that you keep your station at the restaurant, the way you, the ingredients that you have, like, you know, it's respect dot, 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 dot. Mm. And I think my, you can ask anybody that's ever worked for my dad, you know, he had a lot of respect for, you know, ingredients and the employees. And so I think respect is like the overall answer to what I've learned from him. Take me to your first restaurant, your namesake restaurant. Um, you talked about how difficult it was to kind of get that off the ground and what that experience was like. Take me back to the first few years. It ended up, I think, getting several Michelin stars. Am I correct? Well, no, not several, just a couple of years in a row. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can call it several if you want. It's fun to me. That's right. A Michelin star, but con in, 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 in consecutive years. That's, that's a very important point. But still, hey, a Michelin star is a Michelin star. It is. And, it and is. it's your first restaurant. That's an enormous achievement. Yeah. I mean, this, I remember getting a call from my, my old boss and mentor, Laurent, and he said to me, you know, it doesn't matter what happens to you for the rest of your life. Like, you're, you're a Michelin starred chef. And like when, to, when he said that, it was kind of like, whoa. But anyway, so the first, before, way before the Michelin star, there was a lot. <laughs> so we opened in 2008. You know, again, it wasn't a storybook thing. I promise you, you know, my dad did not buy me the restaurant. You know, it was quite the contrary. We, we had to, I was going into people's apartments and telling them to invite whoever they wanted that they thought might want to be an investor. And I was literally showing up to people's apartments, asking them to bring a checkbook. <laughs> Were you really? I'm not joking. It's true. true. Wow. I probably did like 10 of these dinners in different apartments. 
at the end of the dinner, some people would write me a check and some people wouldn't. Wow. <laughs> you know, we raised the money that we needed to raise. I'll, I'll tell you, it cost us about a million bucks to open the place. Probably should have raised a million and a half, but we raised a million and we made it work. And it was still raising money as we were open. You know what I mean? Like we opened, but needed 50 more thousand dollars. So now we invite them as a restaurant, blah, blah, blah. So everything was kind of going good. We had a good summer. We opened in June. We had a decent summer. The reviews were, were good, but you know, fairly obvious. Everybody was comparing me to my dad's, which I kind of knew was going to happen, but it kind of got taken to like this other level of like, like gee, I wanted to like shout from the mountaintop, like I'm not Larry Fogione and I'm not trying to open an American place. Like this is a much different restaurant. Um, everything was going good. Like I said, kind of getting better every day, every month you know, figuring it all out. And then the financial crisis happened. I'm sure, I don't know where you were, but I was in Tribeca, you know, five blocks away from Wall Street. <laughs> I was in New York too. I was in New York. I lived on the Upper West Side. I was working at CBS in New York. I do remember. What was that? What was the impact to your restaurant? And what? where did you go from there? I mean, we, I'm not exaggerating. We went from 130 reservations on like a Thursday to like whatever it was, 25 on Saturday. I mean, it was really? like- really. Yeah, it was instant. It was like, that's it. You know, the country is in a recession. Everybody stopped spending money. And it happened in like 48 hours. Oh, how dramatic. It was crazy. And, you know, you have a whole staff. You have, and I, as I told you before, it's not like we had money in the reserves, you know? So it was like, it was crazy. You know, I think, we, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think we went from a staff of like 40 down to like 12. And did you close? We did not close, but like I said, we fired whatever that is, 65% of our, our workforce, you know, probably went from having eight people in the kitchen to three. You know, I wasn't the quote unquote executive chef anymore. I was the, the, the chef and the butcher and the mm-hmm. prep cook and the line cook. And the, I mean, it was nuts. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National. 
offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hannah Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hannah Chardonnay is a great option. This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. Little did you know that it was setting you up for how to navigate the pandemic, because that probably was a parallel experience for you as as a restaurateur. How did you overcome it? If you had to point to the to the one thing or the, or the couple of things that got you through that time, what was it? Honestly, like sticking with my, my, my gut instinct, you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of people's advice, you know, were look like, let's just switch it to hamburgers and comfort food and, you know, lower the prices. And, you know, I worked so hard to like finally open this place. You know, I was just like, I can't, you know, like I'd rather go down in flames than crawl around pretending to do something that I don't want to do. Mm. And so I kept doing it and, you know, kind of going back to what I just said, like, uh, you know, there's never any rhyme or reason, but, you know, we ended up getting that first star in, what was it? it was 2009, I think when the guide came out, you know, so at that point, and I'm not taking full credit myself, but, you know, there were a lot of people that helped get that first star, but at that point, like I was hands-on, like cooking everything, you know what I mean? Like, and I, you know, who knows, like maybe that was what needed to happen for us to have that recognition or that star or, but it's like, like I said, I think the answer to that question is just following my gut and not listening to, like I could have done fried chicken and cheeseburgers and, you know, waited the thing out. But I just, like I said, I just didn't want to do it. So instead we had a really small menu, um, but everything that was on the menu, you know, I was very proud of. Mm. And it was hard. We worked, I mean, me and the other guys that were in there, I mean, you know, we, we were working in, whatever it was, I think we were closed two days a week at that time, most likely. And, you know, it was like, we got there at 10 in the morning and we left at 11 at night and we did everything ourselves. I want to switch gears for just one second and talk about the difference between creating your own namesake restaurant and then taking over Peasant and the experience of that, right? So Peasant was, you know, sort of an iconic New York City restaurant. How did the experiences differ and what did you like about being a part of Peasant? This is a true story. Peasant, you know, that, that question that you asked me before, even though I really did enjoy talking about Casamono, 
if I hadn't taken over peasant, I probably would have said peasant. Really? <laughs> I loved, I mean, the moment I walked into peasant, I was like, wow, like this is, it like shook me to my core, how beautiful the restaurant was. So the space alone, before the food, you just loved the space. Yeah, I've always been attracted to fire, cooking with fire, like, you know, when growing up, you know, going back to like my childhood, like, you know, we, we would always light fires and cook on open fire grills, like way before it was quote unquote trendy. Yeah, the smell, there's something, there's something yeah. energetic about that, isn't there? Yeah, and then there's nothing better, in my opinion, you know, than, you know, meat, fish, vegetables, like cooked on open fire. Um, yes. First and foremost, peasant was already like this very special place in my heart. And just like a funny little tidbit story. So I was, do I hosted an event there during the New York City Food and Wine Festival in like 2018, I think. And I gave a speech to the crowd about how much I love peasant, how much I love Frank. You know, I think I said, I, if I, when I grow up, I want to be just like Frank, like, so, you know, something, stuff like that. And after the event, he pulled me aside and was like, did you really mean everything you just said? And I was like, of course, like, you know, I love this place. And I've eaten there 15, 20 times. And he just kind of gave me a look. And then like a couple of months later, he called me and was like, you know, nobody knows this, but we're retiring. And mm. you know, I want to give this to, to somebody that's not going to turn it into, you know, an Applebee's or Starbucks. Or <laughs> Please, no. Apple store, not Applebee's. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Applebee's would be really bad. No offense to Applebee's. And, you know, he, he just basically said, like, do you want it? And I was like, mm -hmm. do I want what? You know, he's like, do you want peasant? And I'm like, this can't be happening. Like, you know, it's too crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, so. You know, it wasn't as easy as it sounds. There was a lot of figuring out to do to, to get that to happen. But I was I would have chopped off my left arm to do it. And I kind of did. And why do you say that? Why were you so passionate? I know you love the space. I know you think it's beautiful. But what was it about what that restaurant was trying to say that you wanted to be a part of? I knew that most people don't know this, but when I opened Forge, my first restaurant, the original plan was to have a wood-burning grill, a wood-burning oven. I worked at this place in France called La Ferme au Grieve that they had a roasted suckling pig every day during service. And I always had this like vision of this restaurant that I was going to have. And I, I thought Forge was, was going to be that, but I ran out of money to put in, you know, the wood-burning venting and all the code and all that stuff. But I'd secretly been searching to open this restaurant my whole career. And the reason I say like, you know, I had to chop my left arm off. I was actually supposed to open a wood burning restaurant in the meatpacking district while Frank was telling me, do you want peasant? And I was mm. like, uh, you know, and I had to call those partners and be like, I'm sorry, like I got to do this. And it didn't really end that well. But I, again, following my gut, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm always, doesn't always land me in the right place, maybe for everyone, but Nine times out of 10, when I follow my gut, it ends up being the right one. And I decided to go with Peasant. And, you know, again, I, we opened in January 2020. Uh, I mean, we all know oh, what happened wow. in March 2020. So I had yeah. 10 weeks and then boom. But, you know, that happened to everybody. It's not just right. me. I'm no, not no, gonna, no, 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 not, no. Not, it's not a woe is me story. No, but, it, you know, you have to at some point, and this is for anyone who's listening, at some point you have to sort of chase what excites you and follow what you're really drawn to. And it sounds like, you know, all you can do is make the best decision you can at the time. And that's what you were doing. You, you, you loved the restaurant and you, you instinctively knew it was, it was a good path for you to follow. Yeah. Listen, I give, I give this advice to young cooks, young, anyone, young managers, young, anybody um, that's in the restaurant business. Like, 
it's not, it's not just a restaurant business, any business. Like it's not always the easiest thing to follow your gut. As a matter of fact, I think most of the time your head probably tells you the opposite of what you're definitely your gut. when I say gut, I mean your heart and your soul. Right. And you know, sometimes it's not easy to listen to your heart and soul, but my recommendation to everybody is like, it's not always about money. It's not always about the fanciest thing. It's not always about what you think is going to happen or guaranteed or this, that, the other thing. Sometimes your heart has a way of leading you in the right direction. Let's talk about one fifth, which is your latest venture. What were you trying to say? What are you trying to say with this restaurant? So my back to my dad, my father was living in St. Helena for almost 10 years and he fell in love with this Roman flatbread, the Pinsa, P-I-N-S-A. And, you know, he knew he was kind of coming to an end with what he was doing in, in California. And, you know, we started to talk, like, wouldn't it be fun to do like a, an Italian, you know, the Fugions have never done an Italian restaurant together. And, you know, we are Italian. Mm. We eat Italian at home. And it's just funny that we never like did it. I, you know, he fell in love with this restaurant in St. Helena. I don't know if you've ever been. It's called Ciccio's and kind of like a small family run Italian place built around pizza, not pizza, but pizza. So we started to have this conversation that pre-pandemic, we were looking for spaces to do this. You know, we knew we wanted to do pinza and like small antipasta slash tapas. Cause that's like kind of, again, how we eat at home, especially when we have like Christmas or, you know, family birthdays or whatever. Um, and then obviously pandemic happened. So it got put on hold and I was just driving by Oto, which I know sounds like a stupid Hollywood story, but like I wasn't supposed to be on that. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be on that street. Like I was supposed to make a left a couple blocks north. I was on my way to Peasant to shut it down, actually, for the second shutdown in December. And I made a left on 8th Street and I saw like a, I think it was like a handwritten space available sign in the window of Ota. Wow. <laughs> that is, a, that is fortuitous. And I just slammed on the brakes. And again, for anybody listening, you know, when you see something like that, slam on the brakes. Yes. Like, you know what I mean? And go make that phone call. And I got out of the car and I, I think I left it running and, you know, took a picture of it, got to peasant, called the number and, you know, we were negotiating a couple of weeks later. That's amazing. So how do you describe the restaurant to someone who's never been? What kind of food is it? Italian tapas featuring, we're, we're making pasta in the dining room, um, home, everything, all the pasta is homemade. Um, we have an extruder, we have fresh pasta, and then really um, also trying to focus on this pinza. And the beauty of it is, I know this sounds crazy. I didn't realize how close one fifth was to Union Square Farmer's Market. Mm. So Ooh. the whole menu is literally built on what is at the market at the time. And it's been such a joy. My chefs and I, you know, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, we take the wheelbarrow to the market and we just fill it up. And if you look at the menu, the whole menu is literally like walking through the, the farmer's market. Isn't that fabulous? What kind of experience do you hope guests have? And what is your philosophy on the guest experience at your restaurants? Like, what, how, what do you want them to feel? Uh, welcome. You know, people who don't know me, you know, sometimes people might say like, you know, on TV and, you know, he's got a mohawk and or had a mohawk. You know, he comes from Larry Forgeon. Like, you know, there might be like this air of like, I don't know, being fancy or, you know, but I'm, my, my restaurants are all welcoming and warm and mm. we're all about having fun. You know, there's, mm. I mean, we call it fine dining without the bullshit. <laughs> Is that your official tagline? <laughs> I mean, 
Anybody, you know, I think most people know what I mean. Like sometimes you yeah, go to find one restaurant. It's like, can you just relax, please? Yes. Like, you know, we're here to eat. Yes. Yeah. Well, the kind, the way you want to eat on a daily basis, right? Which isn't stuffy. It's not pretentious. It, it's yeah. it just really delicious food, but it's not about an air of superiority or what you're wearing. No. Yeah. No, just chill. Come in, have fun, and yeah. you know, um, one fit so far. I mean, all my restaurants have that, but one fit so far. Um, you know, we really want it to be like, I know kind of what Oto was, you know, and what one fifth was before Oto was this, this, this restaurant for that neighborhood. Yeah. It was a neighborhood restaurant and, oh. and, you know, a great neighborhood restaurant is, is truly something special. It's a gem, right? Yeah. I'm interested just in your evolution. When you think back to like, like how you said Casa Mona back in those first days when you're learning about barnacle and sepia, like, how have you changed? What has been the biggest change to Mark and how have you evolved? You know, honestly, I think having a kid and the pandemic both kind of happening around the same time really kind of obviously humbled me to my knees. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also made me realize what's really important in life. You know what I mean? Is it getting a Michelin star or is it enjoying life with your family and the people around you and having a business that can do that and help you do that at the same time. I think kind of before the pandemic and before the kid, you know, I was, you know, probably working 70 hours a week and, you know, maybe a little volatile in the workplace and, you know, staying out late and, you know, um, kind of living like the chef life in the fast lane kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe not stopping and smelling the roses enough. And I think now my evolution is, you know, if you came into my kitchens, you wouldn't believe how quiet they are mm. and how I'll use the word respect again, you know, like really just kind of being respectful of, of, of each other's time and, and what's happening and, you know, again, ingredients and employees. And it's not easy, you know, especially now. Now I have, it's over a hundred employees and there's not a day that goes by that I don't have to sit down with somebody. <laughs> and talk. It sounds like the chaos and the pain of the past couple of years have actually been good to you. Well, what I mean by that is like, it just put it into perspective. It's like, mm -hmm. God forbid, if one fifth closes, like I'll figure it out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, if, like, it's like, I don't want it to close and I'm not pretending that I don't care if it closes. But again, I think the pandemic and having a son just really kind of like, it made me realize that the restaurant is part of my life, not my life. I love that. I love that. I've loved this conversation. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I've really, really appreciated it. And cheers to you and your continued success with One Fifth. I'll have to check it out next time I'm in New York. Thank you so much. You let us know. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at to Dine For TV and Facebook at To Dine For With Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.